Welcome to the latest series of the Culture Perth and Kinross podcast. In this episode, Dr Nikki Small will be chatting about Georgina Valentine and the biggest salmon ever caught. Recent research I've been doing has been around the subject of hunting, shooting and fishing in Perthshire in the past. And in this podcast, I'm going to focus on a Perthshire woman called Georgina Ballantyne. Uh, she was born in 1889 and she lived near Capeth on the River Tay. She's famous for having caught a record-breaking salmon in 1922. The fish weighed 64 pounds and was 54 inches in length and 28 and a half inches in girth. We have quite a lot of material on Miss Ballantyne in Perth Museum and in the Perth and Kinross archives, but she wrote a short account of catching the fish, which P.D. Malach, the local tackle merchant in Perth, he sent it to the Fishing Gazette in October 1922. So I'm going to read that short account of how she wrote, um, of what she wrote and how she caught the monster fish. Um, and this is all in her own words, um, an article from the period, so quite interesting. On the evening of 7th October 1922, after a rather strenuous day's fishing, which resulted in the capture of three fine salmon, we determined to finish the day on the river. It was the last evening before the hour changed, therefore we were anxious to make the most of our time. We amounted to father and myself, he rowing, as Melvin, the boatman, had knocked off at 5pm. After towing up the boat, we started harling using two rods, the fly Wilkinson on the right and the dace, which I was plying on the left. The bait was exceptionally well put on with an attractive curl on its tail and spinning along briskly as only Malach's minnows can spin. A few turns at the top of Boat Pool as the sun dipped down behind the hill brought no result. Immediately above the bargy stone, Father remarked that we should see him here. Scarcely were the words spoken when a sudden rug and a screech brought my rod in an upright position. He was hooked. The bait he seized with no unusual violence at 6.15. And thinking him an ordinary sized fish, we tried to encourage him to play into the backwater at Bargy, which is a large boulder. Our hopes, however, upon this point were soon barking and fleeing. Realising evidently that something was amiss, he made a headlong dash for freedom and flew. I can apply no other term to his sudden flight. Down the river he went in midstream, taking a run of about 500 yards before stopping at the same time carrying with him about 150 yards of line. Quick as lightning, the boat was turned, heading downstream, and we soon overtook and got him underhand and within reasonable distance. Heading for the north bank, we were in the act of landing about 200 yards above the bridge, when he came practically to the end of the boat. Scenting danger ahead, he again ran out of reach. Leaving the boat there, we followed him down, and as chance would have it, he passed between the north pier and the bank when going under the bridge. Otherwise, we would have been in a dreadful hole. Not once did he show himself, so we were mercifully kept in blissful ignorance of the monster we were fated to fight to the death. About 200 yards below the bridge, Father thought it advisable to fetch the boat as the fish obstinately kept out in the current. Evidently, our progress downstream was further than Father had anticipated as I immediately got into hot water. Didn't let the beast flee down the water like that woman. With few remarks and much hand-spitting, a habit of father's when anxious, we again boarded the boat, this time keeping in midstream for fully half an hour. As time went on, the strain of this was getting beyond us. The fish remained stationary and sulked. Then we endeavoured to humour and encourage him to the Murthley bank, but he absolutely refused to move. Again, gradually crossing the river, we tried to bring him in into the backwater at the junction, halfway down to Sparrow Muir, where a small breakwater juts out. Again, no luck attended our movements in this direction, though we worked with them for some considerable time. 
Eventually, we recrossed over, close to the island. By this time, darkness had come down and we could see the tree on the island silhouetted against the sky. We'd hoped by the light of the moon to find a suitable landing place, but unfortunately a dark cloud obscured her. The fish kept running out a few paces, then returning, but long intervals were spent without even a movement. He inclined always downstream until the middle of the island was reached, and the light in the cottage window at Sparrowmuir blinked cheerily across the river. By this time, my left arm ached so much from the weight of the rod that it felt paralysed, but I was determined that whatever happened, nothing would induce me to give in. Man, if only the laird or the major had taken him, I wouldn't have been so ill about it. Encouraging remarks like these, I swallowed silently. Once I struck the nail on the head by remarking that if I successfully grasped this fish, he must give me a new frock. Get you the fish landed first and sign we'll see about the frock, was the reply. Nevertheless, I've kept him to his word and the frock has been ordered. By this time, we were prepared to spend the night on the island. Tighter and tighter still, the order came until the tension was so great that no ordinary line could have stood the test for any length of time. It says much for both line and tackle in playing such an important part. Nearer and nearer he came until I was ordered to change my seat to the bow of the boat and by keeping the rod upright, father was thus enabled to feel with the gaff the knot at the junction of line and cast. Having gauged the distance, the remainder was easy. I wound the reel steadily until only the cast line was left. One awful moment of suspense followed, then the gaff went in successfully, which brought him to the side of the boat. A second lift and no small weight brought him over the end into the floor of the boat. Father, out a puff, half sitting on top of him. It was done. It's unnecessary to describe the homeward journey. I was ordered to remain in the boat while father towed it up. We were met at the bridge by the old lady, my mother, who was considerably relieved to see us back. Her greeting showed how perturbed and anxious she'd been during our absence. Good sakes, I thought you were bathed in the water. No time was lost in administering a stiff dose of toddy, which I considered a necessary and well-earned nightcap. Thus ended a red-letter day in the annals of the famous Glendelvin beat of the River Tay. Now, there's lots of interesting insights to take away from that account of Miss Ballantyne's adventure, all in her own words, not least her excitement and the hard work of coping with such a monster fish. As folk who worked the river regularly, they must have been aware that some of the fish were pretty massive. But she notes it was a blessing they did not really grasp how big the fish was. Had she known, it might have made the whole thing even more nerve-wracking. It's an interesting insight into um, her relationship with her father too, the way she writes there. He seems to be quite ungenerous in his remarks, a pretty hard taskmaster, and he seems to demand quite high standards from her skills. Um, and I like this aspect because in her own words, she conveys something of the period. Remember, this is 1922 and Georgina is actually 33 years old. She'd recently served as a nurse in the Great War. We've got records of her um, her service there. Four years, we think, four or five years um, nursing, both in Britain and in France. And it's astounding to think she would silently take orders from her father. And we can only wonder if there perhaps was a little more violent language used amid the tussle and the long time wearily holding on to the fish mid-river. I like the fact that she is quick enough to get a new frock out of the situation and that she relishes her treat upon making at home a hot toddy uh, as a reward. 
I think some of this material that we have suggests the way people regarded um, gender in this event. I've done some reading around uh, the whole thing. Um, um, and it's a woman who achieves such a thing in this male-dominated world of angling at that time. And, and yet she's been fishing since she was a child and clearly knows all the ways of the river and the fish as she tries to land it. She was aware of the fish sulking in the deep, holding a course to flee in the current and also being extremely wary of coming close to the boat after one encounter. She and her father handle all aspects of the event with calm and, and very little drama. They're in and out of the boat. They're thinking on the coming gloom and the night setting in. The actual gaffing of the fish at the end and bringing him into the boat is all described without any sense of anything frantic. And I wonder if this is with the benefit of hindsight, of course, because she's writing her account afterwards. But it doesn't seem that she's given to being dramatic. She only wishes to expand on the joys of angling. Um, in her other accounts um, and other things that are written about her, she describes all the best aspects of the pastime from enjoying the woods, um, the evening, the bird song, um, and the running water. Um, she doesn't try to describe the moment of elation in catching the fish. She just cannot describe it, so she does not try. She says it's better left to be imagined. Um, and I imagine other people who understand angling and who enjoy the sport um, will, will understand that point of view, that it's not something that's obviously very personal. It's noted that she'd already caught three very large fish that day. So again, it's no fluke that she caught this big fish too. Um, it's quite amazing. There was great excitement in Perth after the fish was caught um, and a crowd at Malach's um, gathered to, to view the salmon. It was taken into Perth. Miss Ballantyne herself went into town, of course she did, and, and she really wondered what the crowd was about. She didn't really believe it was about her. Um, she overheard people chatting um, and saying it was hardly likely to be true that um, a woman had caught the fish. Um, somebody was heard in the crowd saying, ah, you know, that's that's no right. That'll, that'll be a lee, apparently, um, a lie that somebody had said. And, and she just seems to be amused by this. She's not put out. Um, there's a report that the fish was sent to PRI um, to be used to feed the patients, um, but I can't find out any more about that. I don't know whether anyone else might know something more. Um, Malachs made a, a mould in order to create replicas of the fish. These are the kind of things that people would hang on a wall. Um, you've often seen these big framed moulds with all the details underneath it, and, and the museum has one of these. Um, and of course, there are the famous pictures of Miss Ballantyne and her fish, um, which circulated um, in, the, in, the, in the newspapers. Lots of reports in the newspapers, dinners and events. Um, and she really did celebrate in style. It was it was nice for her, I think. One other thing I might mention now is some research on salmon and women. Um, so there's a book dedicated to this, and it seems many record-breaking fish have been caught by women. Um, and given that a significant number of, of fish have been caught by women, there's some issue here, and they're trying to explain what the, maybe the science around this is. So one idea is that pheromones play a part. And there have been some small studies suggest that fish are put off by male scents in the water. A man at a fish ladder carried out experiments where he placed his hand in the water near the top and this agitated the fish coming up and, and made them turn back. It also showed that they delayed coming up the ladder for some time until the effect had worn off. And similarly, a woman placing her hand in the water had no effect at all on the fish. So there's something um, in female pheromones which actually attracts salmon. Um, and can this be conveyed through the flying line? And does it explain why women have, um, have caught some of the biggest fish in, in this country? Who knows? <clears throat> Miss Ballantyne lived all her life at Capeth. 
She was terribly afflicted with arthritis, which severely impacted on her health. Um, I found a wonderful article in the newspapers of 1955, which reported that a syndicate who fished on the river and who were all looked after by her had decided to pay to have electricity um, installed in her home. She'd only a paraffin lamp, so they put in wiring, um, heating um, and a generator with switches inside the house so she need not go out to the outhouses to turn all the power on. Um, there was quite a party for her um, and it illustrates really how well regarded she was locally. It's quite sweet, there's pictures and they took a big cake and um, and had champagne and, and she thought that people in Perth would hear the, the rami of the party. But uh, amazing for her you know, to still be in the papers uh, years later. She died in 1970. Um, her record was never broken and probably never will be. And that is, is quite a claim to fame. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with another podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. And if you're able to support Culture Perth and Ken Ross in any way, please consider donating to our Book Heroes campaign. A link to this campaign can be found on our website and in the show notes. Thanks again. <laughs>